Hey, how's it going, everyone? This is Glenn Gare from the Neepscast, everyone's favorite evolutionary psychology podcast, focusing on everything evolutionary psych related, particularly connected with the Northeastern Evolutionary Psychology Society. And today I'm here with one of my treasured alumni, Dr. Dan Glass, who recently got his PhD uh, in clinical psychology from Suffolk University and was um, the first ever, when he was a grad student, the first ever grad student to actually host very successfully one of the meetings of NEEPS. So Dan, how are you doing today? I'm great, Glenn. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely, man. Um, so we, we go pretty far back. I guess uh, I first met you and you joined our research lab at SUNY New Paltz. And what year was that? Well, it's going on a decade. It's not, it's not quite, but uh, that would have been around 2010-ish, I think. Yeah, that sounds about right. Wow. We were kids back then, Dan. Yeah, right. Yes. <laughs> Um, and uh, so, so you had a pretty cool path. Why don't you maybe walk us a little bit through your path of what, what you did before my lab and then that experience of being in my lab and how you sort of advanced with your interest in evolutionary psychology from there. Sure. Let me try to cast my mind back. I, uh, in undergrad, I started psychology as a major kind of late. Um, so I was trying to do business at first. And so when I, by the time I got into psychology, um, it was kind of a matter of finishing up my credits and, uh, and and moving on. So I didn't quite have a clear picture of what I wanted to do, but I did decide that um, it, it was probably something to do with uh, with clinical psych. That was kind of where I was looking. Um, I took some uh, some clinical coursework and some uh, independent uh, clinical stuff, and then uh, I decided I really liked evolutionary psych as well. Um, so I was hoping from that point on to find a way to combine those two fields. Um, and I, I looked for PhD programs that uh, were a good blend of both clinical and evolutionary perspectives. And I uh, was disappointed to find that's not um, really a thing that you typically find in, in psychology PhD programs. Right. So there were a couple of, of uh, sort of semi options. There were schools where um, somebody was doing clinical psych who maybe was somewhat interested in evolutionary psych, or maybe there was a, uh, an evolutionary person elsewhere in a different department who I could potentially, you know, work with on the side, but there was no real, um, great options for me in terms of PhD programs. So, um, I, I was looking around online to try to figure out where to apply. And I came across SUNY New Paltz where, um, somebody who, uh, who you knew, uh, some student, uh, was work, had an interest that w that combined both of those domains, the, the clinical and the evolutionary, and so that's that's why I ended up writing to you, and I ended up um, in in your master's program at SUNY New Paltz, which was a uh, a great thing for me to get into the world of evolutionary psych research, and then after that, I went on to uh, what I had initially wanted to to do all along, which was uh, a clinical psych PhD program. Uh, I was fortunate to find one of these programs uh, that. Uh, I was geographically uh, constrained to a particular area based on what my, my wife was doing. She was a student at the time, and so I had to, had to work around Boston. I had to be sure. in a program around Boston, and one of the programs I applied to, Suffolk University, had faculty there who happened to be interested in, in evolutionary perspectives. So that's how I sort of ended up where I am. I'm, I'm currently uh, I'm, I'm in the, the realm of practice right now. I'd like to go back into research and academia maybe one day, but for now, this is uh, this seems to be a pretty good situation I'm in. 
Well, sounds good. I'm, I'm so glad that things have been working out for you and it's great that you're able to stay connected with the, the field. Um, so let's uh, back up. One, one question that I'd like to ask our guests pertains to um, your particular take on evolutionary psychology. What is so special about it and what do you, um, how do you define it and how do you see the importance of it? Right. Well, I define evolutionary psych in the, the broad conception of the term, meaning evolutionary approaches to behavior. Oftentimes we're talking about human behavior, but also you, you look at other species as well. So from the broad sense, evolutionary perspectives on behavior are important to me because they provide the link between the hard sciences and the social sciences. And um, I believe that without that theoretical framework, it's often difficult for the social sciences to have a kind of an anchor. Um, when you look at the, uh, the so-called hard sciences or the natural sciences, they are consilient with one another because chemistry is rooted in particular uh, properties of physics and biology is rooted in chemistry. Mm -hmm. um, and then you get to a point where um, psychology should be rooted in um, in biology and some elements of some domains of psychology certainly are, you have yes, physiological psychology, um, neuropsych, those things are related, are rooted in biology, but um, really looking more at the, the physiological perspective. So um, there are other elements of biology besides physiology. And, and I think one very important uh, fundamental domain is that of, of the evolutionary um, sciences. So I think that that is, is really critical to, uh, sort of provide a, a true north for, for the social sciences. Great. And uh, I know you've, uh, you've done research on a lot of different topics, which is something I really admire about you. And uh, if it's okay, I haven't heard you talk about your master's thesis that you did years ago. And I think that that was just such a great example of integrating evolutionary ideas with ideas related to psychopathology and clinical psychology. Sure. So for my master's thesis, uh, my, my first master's thesis I did at SUNY New Paltz, uh, as opposed to the one I did at, at Suffolk, um, that one involved obsessive compulsive disorder, particularly looking at the symptoms of OCD and trying to analyze how those symptoms might be related to uh, particular adaptive domains of normal human behavior. So in other words, a lot of the, the symptoms that you see in OCD are related to fundamental domains of things such as um, keeping oneself safe or um, hoarding or acquiring resources, um, keeping oneself free from pathogens. And um, in, a lot of the, uh, in a lot of cases, those behaviors end up in a sort of a, a sort of an unconstrained or more uh, pathological extent, but they are typical human behaviors in some sense. So um, my research was sort of taking a theoretical look at those domains as potentially um, related to the, um, the evolved human domains that, that, you know, sort of we need to be able to do. We need to be able to keep ourselves safe, our families safe. We need to be able to, uh, you know, uh, have, have, uh, have resources. Um, of course, now, uh, since I started that research, um, hoarding disorder was sort of broken out of the, uh, the OCD 
realm now it's considered a different thing but uh back at the time that was it was considered sort of one of the one of the domains the symptom domains of of ocd so um yeah i looked at a, a general community sample and um found uh to nobody's great surprise that um all the the, the ocd type symptoms that that people have or people report when they actually have ocd are also found in um, this non-clinical this, this community sample um, to uh, to different domains to different um, extents rather and um, and so you know I, I took a look at the uh, I, I took a look at that perspective as being supportive of the fact that you know we all have these particular domains and in some some cases for whatever reason they tend to be um, maybe uh, more dysregulated or sort of more overactive in some people. Mm. But the fact that they're overactive in some people is kind of like the idea, the way that you're talking about it as um, it's almost like a, like a radar system and you want your radar to be more likely to make what we call type one errors or finding something when it's not necessarily there is kind of a better alarm system or radar system in some conditions than something that's not really good at detecting something that, that is there. So would you say that that, um, that, that the model you're talking about relates to this type one error idea? I would say so. I think that, um, and, and that's not to say that therefore it is adaptive to have um, clinical OCD, but rather um, it certainly is adaptive in some cases to, um, to be more attuned to, uh, to, to danger or, or, um, or problems that, that uh, you anticipate in the future. Um, but sort of a, to sort of tie that into the, the mainstream sort of clinical psych uh, theory of, of anxiety, at least um, the cognitive behavioral theories of anxiety, um, it seems to be that uh, people often have, um, for one reason or another, are just more, more prone to um, anxiety. And the, the form that it takes depends on some features of your early environment. Um, and perhaps, for example, if you had a, a parent who was overly, um, overly scrupulous or, or overly um, uh, concerned with contamination, your, um, your anxiety symptoms might manifest in the form of religious scrupulosity or, um, or hand washing or cleaning. Um, whereas other, other people might have um, more symptoms of worry. Um, so I think that in, in people, for whom their uh, system is just happens to be tuned higher, um, they're more likely to have anxiety symptoms of one type or another. And um, the, the, the one that I chose at the time was OCD just because the, the disparate domains of um, all the different systems that could be affected um, kind of intrigued me. Fascinating. So we can really better understand psychopathology and mental health when we start implementing evolution-based ideas. Yes, and where I'm working now, um, I'm using uh, a treatment intervention protocol called the Unified Protocol. It's a transdiagnostic um, protocol, meaning that it's used for a number of different diagnoses uh, that have to do with anxiety, impulse control, and uh, depressive disorders. And um, it was uh, originated at Boston University. Dave Barlow was one of the uh, one of the main people who, uh, who came up with this. Um, this intervention, and he's he's sort of a maven in the cognitive behavioral um, treatment realm, and um, it starts with a, a psychoeducation module where you essentially describe to people 
the purpose for why we have emotions. So any of the clients that come in here, um, many of them are children, some of them are young adults, but a lot of them are very young. And I talk to them about why we have fear, why we have anxiety, why we have anger. And um, the point is that each of these is evolved for a particular set of situations. Um, we get afraid in order to, uh, to keep us from imminent harm. We have anxiety to keep us um, from falling prey to harm that we are um, anticipating or imagining or um, you know that we think might be coming. Um, we have anger to get us to forcefully change the behavior of others who have, uh, who have wronged us in some way. And so by teaching children um, why we have evolved the particular emotions, then I can um, show them, okay, so when you got angry that you had to go to bed, um, it doesn't seem like anybody was really wronging you. So then children can begin to distinguish um, from appropriate firings of, of that emotion versus um, uh, situ situations where the emotion came up and it didn't seem to match. And from there, we can go into the, uh, the therapy part where they sort of, so let's figure out why and let's figure out what we can do instead. So um, that is to say evolutionary psych is um, at the core of the, the sort of therapy that I do now. Oh, that's great, man. That, that's great to hear. And I'm sure that your clients appreciate the work that you're doing. Um, so related to all this, you've been central regarding a little group we call APES, or the Applied Evolutionary Psychology Society, and you've recently taken on um, the elected position as the, the president of the organization. Um, and I know we have a, a meeting of the society coming up. So why don't you tell, uh, tell the world a little bit about APES, how it relates to NEEPS, and what we're hoping to do into the future. Sure. So Apes was initially an offshoot of NEEPS. It was uh, people who started getting together at, at the NEEPS meetings and saying we were interested in um, using these concepts in an applied fashion. Um, so let's take some of the concepts that we're learning about and studying and use them in domains of, uh, of human endeavor in ways that can really uh, lead to change in the way people live their lives and, and the way uh, people practice um, careers in mental health, in politics, in education, and so forth. So APES is really dedicated to taking the research that comes out of societies such as NEEPS or you know, from any other uh, researcher who is studying evolutionary perspectives on human behavior and um, translating them and disseminating them to people who can use that information in their own careers. So um, currently our, our membership happens to be a lot of um, evolutionary researchers, but what, as the society grows, what we're trying to do is reach out to practitioners who are not necessarily um, evolutionary scientists, but who would just benefit from having evolutionary thought in their, uh, in their, uh, lives in terms of the, their, their jobs. And we think that should be almost anybody who works in, in a sort of a large way with, um, with people. We think that um, mental health practitioners sort of, uh, I, I just gave one example of how mental health practitioners could benefit from uh, using evolutionary psychological principles. There are uh, a lot of others. Um, we think that um, policymakers, politicians, um, the, the legal field, these are all, um, domains where evolutionary principles should be um, in consideration because you're dealing with human behavior. Uh, same for economics. 
Um, so uh, I, I really do think there is a need for an organization that connects the research that's going on with the, uh, the people who have boots on the ground who are, uh, who can really benefit from this stuff and who's, uh, and therefore whose clients and, and the people that they work with can benefit from this stuff. And that's what, that's what apes is really about. That's great. And, uh, so we've got the, uh, the next meeting of apes is going to be on June 4th, I believe. Is that right? Um, I think it might be, uh, the, uh, I'm just looking at the calendar myself. So I think it's the, uh, Right, the fourth, which is the last day of NEEPS, right? So, yep. um, exactly. So, so June fourth is going to be our mental health symposium, um, and it is uh, it focuses on the mental health um, domain. As in I said, Bo- April, in Boston, in in Boston, yes, um, at the uh, the nonprofit center in Boston. Please go to our website www.apesociety.org that's a-e-p society.org if you want to learn more details and um the the the, um the mission of apes is broad and covers a lot of different domains but the one that we're focusing on for this event is the mental health domain so um our target audience uh of course we we want there to be researchers we want there to be students because um we are uh we are you know, a very student-centric uh, organization, just as NEEPS is, but our target audience is practitioners. So that's psychologists, that's psychiatrists, um, uh, social workers, um, counselors, anybody who works with uh, with people and does psychotherapy um, can benefit from the sort of uh, the sort of practical um, content that's that's going to be covered at the uh, the Apes Mental Health Symposium. That's that's great, and the uh, this <clears throat> this particular year, we actually you and I sat down and wrote away for a grant that was supported by the Human Behavior Evolution Society. Um, so maybe tell us a little bit about how the monies that we obtain through that can help support this um, meeting on June fourth. Sure. So we are trying to so we're trying to use some of that money to um, to increase our attendance, to increase our visibility. We want to make sure we have plenty of. Um, of student uh, attendees there. So we, um, we plan to be able to um, supplement the, uh, some, some student uh, funding. If, if students are having trouble getting to us, if, if money is an issue, we don't want that to, to stop people from coming to our event. So um, the event itself is free, but if, if people are having uh, difficulty with, uh, with lodging or travel, we want to be able to, um, to provide for them. Um, we're also going to be able to, um, to provide uh, continuing education uh, units, uh, continuing ed credits uh, are, are going to be very important for um, uh, you know for the mental health practitioners who are our target audience. So we want to be sure that we are um, are offering those. So they have um, two reasons to come: one, because we're um, giving some very valuable uh, information, and two, because um, they do need those CEUs to uh, continue in their field year to year, depending on what state you're in. So. Uh, we are hoping that through these different means, we're able to attract a, a large audience uh, of students and researchers and practitioners. Well, that's great. And I'm sure it's going to be a big success. And I look forward to, uh, <clears throat> to being part of it in June. Thanks. Yeah. So, uh, so on to another side project that you have. Um, you are one of the uh, spearheaders of the Psych Table Project, which is an exciting project related to helping us really better organize and understand our evolved psychology. So tell us a little bit about PsychTable. Sure. PsychTable.org is a uh, 
mass collaborative online um, project that was uh, started by Nirubhan Balachandran and myself. And um, this was initially Nirubhan's idea uh, to have a sort of um, central reference taxonomy for the, evol the evolutionary behavioral sciences, just like um, you know, there's the, the periodic table of the elements, or just like there's um, Gray's anatomy, or there's different reference uh, guides uh, in different fields, and evolutionary psychology and, and the allied fields um, are a domain where you hear lots of people make claims such as humans uh, have, a, um, have an evolved adaptation to do this or to do that. Um, but there's really no way to really um, have all that information centrally located and sort of see, okay, so what, what all um, adaptations have been um, proposed in this field and what are the support for any given, what is this, the, the evidentiary support for any given one of these adaptations? So um, the site um, is uh, psychtable.org, um, is functions like a cross between um, RottenTomatoes.com, if you if you're familiar with that site, and um, and in Wikipedia, as well as uh, elements of the periodic table. Um, no pun intended there. Um, so um, the Rotten Tomatoes bit. Um, so Rotten Tomatoes aggregates ratings for movies. So um, if a movie has um, gets a good review from any particular reviewer, I have no idea whether or not that's going to to tell me if. I like, or I'm going to like that movie or not, unless I happen to know that particular reviewer and uh, agree with his tastes. But if I see that 97% of reviewers have liked this movie, that tells me something about the, my likelihood of, of appreciating the movie. So on psychtable.com, psychtable.org rather, um, we have, uh, somebody could look up a particular evolved adaptation that has been proposed in the literature. Let's say, for example, um, the preference uh, for a particular waist-hip ratio, right, which is something that people have proposed that, that humans have. Um, we will be, you'll be able to uh, look at all the evidence that has been um, offered in the literature for this possibility that humans actually prefer a waist-hip ratio of 0 0.7. And um, if you... Uh, if you know of a um, study that speaks to that particular um, uh, topic that's not there, you can add it yourself if you are a, if you're an approved um, uh, curator of the site and uh, you, you can apply to, to be a curator of the site. If you have some sort of um, background in, in research, you can send in your, your CV and uh, you can be approved. Um, so you can, you can um, contribute in that way. And if you look at the, um, the evidence on the site, you see the citations, and um, and you'll be able to see from along different lines of evidence how strongly the literature supports or challenges the existence of that given um, evolved psychological adaptation. So, um, as you know, there there is some controversy about whether or not humans do in fact um, have uh, a preference for this particular waist-hip ratio. There are some people who say yes, and there are some people who say uh, no, and the people who say no have their own um, evidence that they, they can cite. So all of that will be there, and um, the curators of the page um, will be able to, uh, to rate any given study on um, how well, it supports the existence of, of the particular uh, evolved psychological adaptation from a genetic perspective, if, if that is spoken to in the literature, from a, from a theoretical perspective, from a, a hunter-gatherer perspective, from a cross-cultural perspective. Um, and so um, overall, the, uh, the website has an algorithm that it will use to um, 
transform these ratings into sort of an overall score for each given evolved psychological adaptation. And so people who are browsing the site, these could be um, researchers, these can be students, um, these can be lay people who want to know about the brain, they can sort of see, okay, so here's how strongly um, this, this uh, evolved psychological adaptation, or EPA as, as I'm calling it, um, is supported in the literature. Um, something for uh, an EPA for uh, color vision, right, or thirst might have a very strong uh, or a very high score because um, it's fairly uncontroversial that we have particular mechanisms that are um, evolved to, uh, to do those things. Whereas um, something like uh, waist hip ratio might have a uh, somewhat lower score. And then there are uh, some evolved psychological adaptations that have been proposed that uh, don't fare very well in the literature, such as um, the proposal that uh, humans are evolved to um, distinguish people of different races. Um, it seems like that is that is one that uh, you know we ha we may have mechanisms to distinguish people from different uh, groups, right? But not race per se. And so that would be one that would be on there. But it but if you were to look it up, it would show that most of the evidence uh, uh, suggests that we yeah challenges that suggests that we don't have that sort of uh, evolved capacity. Well, that's. That's great. I, as you know, I've been a supporter of this project for a long time, and I look forward to seeing the uh, the evolution of the project. No pun intended. Thank you. So um, we are currently in um, in the uh, in the midst of a uh, crowdfunding campaign. So we're trying to raise money to get this up and running. So um, we need to be able to uh, to hire a developer, um, and uh, and so we're looking for grant funding, and we're also looking for uh, for crowdfunding. So um, if uh, if anyone's listening to this and is interested in helping us out, uh, helping make the Psych Table a reality, please go over to psychtable.org and uh, and see how you can help. Well, that that sounds great. Well, hopefully we get some good good support, and I'm sure this project is going to just on, only get better as time goes on. Thanks. Um, so uh, another question. This is the Neeps cast, and I know that you have been going to Neeps, I believe, since 2011, if my numbers are right. Yeah, uh, so tell us, uh, tell the audience, you know, what is Neeps from, from Dan Glass's perspective? I think Neeps is a very open and warm and sort of collegial conference. And, and um, it's not the case with every academic conference. You know, um, I haven't been to a lot of academic conferences in my day, but um, I've been to a few and I can compare and um, I think uh, Neeps has a good balance of intellectual rigor um, and also that sort of um, warmth and friendliness that you uh, don't get at, let's say, uh, an enormous conference, like uh, like an APA conference, right, which is sort of overwhelmingly large. Um, so I think that at NEEPS, uh, especially if you're a student, you can, um, you can, you can, it will feel um, like it's a place where you can meet people and talk to people and not be intimidated to do so. And you can uh, throw out your ideas and get help without um, anyone um, being overly harsh about the ideas you're trying to, to, uh, to put forth. So um, people can certainly offer criticism there, but um, it's not one of these places where you have to worry about, they're going to trash my, they're going to trash my talk or, you know, something like that. This is not, this is not the, the environment of Neeps. And I think it's uh, uh, for that reason, if you're interested in the evolutionary behavioral sciences, it is a great conference to go to, especially if you're a student or a young researcher. Yeah, I, I certainly think so. That certainly is the culture that we try to 
to cultivate with the organization. So if you're a student interested in evolutionary psych and you're thinking about maybe coming to Boston to, to see what it's all about, do it. You should do it. Absolutely. Um, so one more question before our ultimate question uh, is I'll, I'll give a preamble that um, you were a very, very strong student when you were a student of mine years ago. And I, I know that you were a great student at, in other universities where you got other degrees as well. Um, so what, what do you have to say? There's students out there listening. They want to achieve greatness. They have, they have academic and career related aspirations. What, what piece of advice would you have to get those kids, get those young scholars on the right path? I would say one thing would be to make sure you have good um, statistical and quantitative uh, skills. I think that it doesn't have to be exceptional. It doesn't have to be amazing. But um, it's, it's something that you have to have a, a basic um, uh, sort of conversance with in order to, uh, to, to really um, – sort of fully stretch your wings as a, as a researcher. I think that, um, you know, if you have a good statistics instructor or if you find a good resource where you can learn about it, um, then it doesn't take much to actually uh, be um, knowledgeable in statistics. In other words, there is a, there's a whole lot of statistics and I th it's, a, it's an overwhelming field. And yet, if you sort of know maybe 5% of what there is to know about statistics, people will look at you and say, that guy's pretty good at stats, mm -hmm. right? Because a lot of the, the basics that you use um, are, are in that first 5%. True. And uh, the more you can learn above and beyond that, the stronger you'll be. I think you only uh, you can only do as much as your uh, your statistical knowledge um, lets you do. Uh, another another sort of option is to, uh, is to be friends with somebody who's really good at that stuff. I think <laughs> you should probably do both. Um, so Absolutely. I think that's one thing. Um, I think another thing is to, uh, this is, I don't mean this is a cliche, but to be open to other perspectives and to be a little humble about your own. So I think that, um, you know, people hear, people say this all the time, but then um, it's not uncommon to uh, hear about students who, um, who go into uh, situations with, uh, you know, with their mind being strongly made up about whatever research uh, they're doing. And, um, you know, can can be a little uh, arrogant or a little brash, and maybe uh, miss miss other perspectives that they should um, they should be incorporating into their own work. Um, I know that um, at SUNY New Paltz, I was um, I was part of this conversation um, whose general message was something like evolutionary psychology needs to take more from developmental psych and um, evolutionary psych is um, ignoring perspectives from, from developmental researchers. And you know what, I, I, um, it's easy to bristle at that and say, no, we're not. <laughs> but I think that it's very true that there are really two perspectives that you need to have to be able to understand uh, psychology. You need to have the evolutionary perspective and you need to have the developmental perspective. And um, both of them are, are going to be necessary if you look at any given organism, um, especially humans, um, who have this sort of very long developmental period in their lives, to, to say, okay, well, this is the, um, the natural uh, history of the, uh, of the, the organisms uh, in terms of their, their evolutionary lineage, and here's the uh, personal history of the organism in terms of their, um, their learning and their context, and um, 
these are both very important things. I think that um, you uh, you ignore development at your peril. And and so um, I just use one example. There are going to be other people who are going to uh, have different problems with your research, no matter what uh, area of research you end up in, whether it's evolutionary or not. Um, and I think it's always important to listen to those people and try to to pick out what um, what they're saying and try to make sure you incorporate those perspectives if they're saying you need alternate perspectives in your own work, whether or not you fully agree with their thesis or not, because oftentimes they, they're right. There you go. And, and, you know, I think having an open mind within the academy, being open to other perspectives, open to other ideas, it's only going to benefit you. You know, it's only going to benefit you and the work that you're doing will certainly be better informed to the extent that you're, broadening, you know, your point of view. So I, I absolutely agree with you on that. Exactly. Um, in fact, the psych table project, um, one of the, the main sort of uh, um, guiding principles that we have is that um, as a project, we don't really care if the, um, the adaptations that we hold really dear turn out to be strongly supported or not, right? It's okay if it turns out that um, as some uh, researchers have suggested, maybe we only have um, a, particular uh, specifically evolved psychological adaptations for a very small set of uh, perceptual uh, abilities and maybe maybe nothing else works that way in the mind maybe that's the case right and um, you know I have my own um, you know perspectives on that question but um, really whatever happens happens and um, if psych table is not any supposed to be pro-evolutionary psychology per se, right? right? It's just, we, we believe that the mind is evolved and, and, you know, as long as you accept that premise, you can sort of, we can disagree on whether or not, um, uh, any particular evolved psychological adaptation exists or not. And, uh, and let's look at the evidence and the evidence is the arbiter, not, um, how strongly I feel about the subject or how strongly you feel about it. Absolutely. The truth is the truth. Right. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Dan, I, I always appreciate hearing your insights and it's been great to have you on the, uh, on the show. I have one more question. As you know, our final question on the Neepscast is let's hear your evolutionary psychology themed haiku. Natural selection and many other forces made our minds this way. Bam. That's brilliant, Dan. That's, and it's absolutely right. And I totally agree with it. So Excellent. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for your time. And I look forward to seeing you in June. Thanks again for having me, Glenn. Looking forward to seeing you. Yep. Take care. And everyone, this has been the Neeps Cast. I'm Glenn Gare, and that was our special guest, Dan Glass.